All right, so we are continuing through Unit 4 of Jews, Israel, and Jesus. And Unit 4 is Prophets Foretell of Messiah. Now, we've said already in some of the classes of Unit 4 in particular that we're covering a lot of scriptures. And you can go as deep as you want to go using the scriptures that are provided in your study guide. But if we were to take all the time to go deeply into every point that is raised by all of these scriptures, this course is long enough already. Who knows how long it would be if we paused on every point? My purpose more in this unit was to expose you to the scriptures that prophesy the Messiah and certain elements of the Messiah's life and ministry so that you will hear them with your own ears, they will be familiar to you, and then you can do your own work in your own time to dig in more deeply to understand how Jesus fulfilled these prophetic passages. Well, we've made our way up to point point I. And point I is Daniel foresees the timeline and events up to the Messiah's arrival. Now here, some of you are going to be disappointed because I'm going to read through the scriptures and highlight the key elements there, but I'm not going to get into arguments and debates and calculations. I'm just presenting the fact that Daniel prophesied the timeline, and then the timeline happened leading up to Jesus' arrival perfectly, according to what Daniel said. So let's look at the key scriptures from the book of Daniel pertaining to the arrival of the Messiah. We'll start with Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has had a dream, and no one can interpret it. Now, we're not going to go extensively into the dream, but he saw an image with a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and a middle and thighs made of bronze and legs of iron iron and feet made of clay and iron. And so Daniel is the one who is given the revelation of what the dream is and also the interpretation. So we're going to jump in, not into the whole explanation of the whole story, but we're going to begin at verse 39. So this is halfway through the interpretation. After he has explained that Nebuchadnezzar, meaning the kingdom of Babylon, is the head of gold. We're at verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And now this is the significant thing. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
Okay, so again, just to go through this quickly, you can study it in depth on your own time, but Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, that was the head of gold. The next one after it was the kingdom of Persia. The next one after it was the kingdom of Greece. And in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, it gives a little bit more detail specifically about these kingdoms. Well, after Greece, Rome took over the world. And Rome, it was an empire of iron. It was a machine of war and conquest, and the whole world was terrified of Rome. So if you hear of Roman peace or Pax Romana, that peace was at the cost of military might. But within that military might, Rome allowed for a lot of autonomy between its territories. So it allowed for people to follow their own customs and practices as long as they didn't cause any rebellion or any difficulty for Rome, and they paid their tribute accordingly. So Rome was that final empire that ruled the whole world with iron, but was kind of mixed in its composition. But it says, in the days of those kings. So imagine if you were a Jewish person looking at the scriptures and understanding, okay, first we had Babylon, then we had Persia, then we had Greece, then we had Rome. You would be anticipating the kingdom of God. Your anticipation for Messiah would be high in the Roman Empire. You would say, this is it. We're in the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron that is crushing everything but is also mixed. This is it. The times are upon us that the God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So that's one of the timelines that Daniel foresaw about the Messiah's arrival. That was why the anticipation was high. Well, Daniel chapter 7 is a very similar vision to Daniel chapter 2, but this time the vision is given to Daniel himself. So it goes into more detail. But again, we're not going to go into the whole vision and the whole revelation. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of four different beasts, and these beasts represented different empires. So it's the same vision as Daniel chapter 2. It's just given with a different metaphor. So in Daniel chapter 2, it was the statue with the different elements. In Daniel chapter 7, it's four different kinds of beasts. But the beasts represent four empires. It's the same vision given in a different way. So this is Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 17. Again, we're picking up about halfway through. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's eternity, folks. The kingdom of God is coming, and it is an eternal kingdom. And the saints, the holy ones, the Kedoshim, are going to possess it. We're at verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. 
And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So again, if you were living in the times when you had seen empire after empire after empire, you are anticipating the Messiah's arrival. You are anticipating keeping your life holy and pure to be counted among the saints who will receive the kingdom of God. Because the Ancient of Days, God himself is going to come and bring judgment on those who have been trampling and oppressing the saints of the Most High God in a time of tribulation, and then God's going to come and set up his kingdom and give it to his people. We're at verse 23. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So you see, he makes war on the saints and prevails over them. He speaks words against the Most High. He wears out the saints. He tries to change the times and the laws. And if you know your history, the Roman Empire changed the calendar. So there's the calendar of this world world, and then there's the calendar of God. That's a whole different conversation for a different day. But the Antichrist is coming, who will have authority and dominion, and will oppress and cause difficulty for the saints of the Most High, and will be victorious over them for a time. We're at verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. The Antichrist's dominion will be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve him and obey him. Okay, so this is the same vision as Daniel chapter 2, just given in a different way, and it goes into more detail about the difficulties that will be experienced by the people of God. So we talked in a prior unit about how Daniel saw that, yes, the people were going to be restored to the land, but it was not going to be immediately the establishment of the kingdom of God. There was going to be a time of war and difficulty and Gentile empires ruling the world before God came and before God sent the Messiah to establish the eternal kingdom. But eventually, God will come and judge all kingdoms, all dominions, all authorities in the earth, including the Antichrist who has set up his kingdom in all the earth over all people and has oppressed and made war with the saints and prevailed over them for a time, but God will come and bring vengeance. God will hand the eternal kingdom over to his people forever, but only after a time of great tribulation, great persecution, and war. And in the days of Jesus, there were people, they were called the Essenes. They were preparing for holy war. And another group called the Zealots. The Zealots were preparing for holy war. They were ready for the Messiah to come and kick some Roman butt because they were thinking about it in a human context of the interpretation of these scriptures. They were not anticipating the Messiah the way that he came in the person of Jesus. But you can see from these scriptures why they would think that because they had been oppressed by Persia, by Greece, by Rome, and they were ready for the arrival of the eternal kingdom and the Messiah who would hand the kingdom over to the holy ones of God. 
Well, Daniel is not quite done yet. We'll look at Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is when Daniel had been praying about the return of the people to the land. We talked about different parts of Daniel 9 in a prior unit. But let's look at Daniel giving the exact timeline of the Messiah's arrival. This is now Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. So remember, Daniel had been praying, it's because of our own sin that we are in exile. So the interpretation is you've got 70 more weeks until transgression is done, sin is done, iniquity is atoned for. The scripture continues, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet. That means the words of the prophets will all come to pass. They will be sealed. They will be evidenced to be true. It goes on, and to anoint a most holy place. We're at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So we just heard from Daniel 7, it's going to be a time of tribulation. We're up to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So that sounds like Isaiah 53, the anointed one who is cut off from the land of the living. He is cut off from the realm of the living. He dies. He is killed. He is cut off from the people of God, even though he is the Messiah. Remember, anointed one is the word for Messiah, the Mashiach, who is coming to redeem the people. He's the one that's going to be cut off and have nothing. The scripture continues, and the people of the prince. Now, the prince has shifted to be the evil prince, the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So you see, the scriptures are very clear that a time of tribulation and difficulty will be upon the face of the whole earth until the arrival of Messiah to establish his eternal kingdom and usher in the world to come. These scriptures have been fulfilled in Jesus the first time that he came in exact accordance with the timeline that is prophesied in these passages. But there are other elements of these passages where the Antichrist has not yet established his worldwide dominion, and Jesus has not yet returned to fulfill that element of redeeming the people who have put their faith in him and establishing his eternal kingdom in the world to come, bringing the day of judgment and establishing peace over all the earth for the rest of eternity. So there's a balance between what has been fulfilled and what has not yet been fulfilled. But you understand that this is in a time that desolations are decreed until the end. To the end, there will be war. So we're up to verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so there are two major schools of thought on how to calculate this, and I'm not going to go into the full debate about those two ways, but the scripture says, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. So that's where the clock is set for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, both ways of calculating arrive to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah because the time frame lines up perfectly, depending on 
depending on what tools you're using to calculate. Well, one of these ways is found based on the decree of Cyrus for the return of the exiles to the land of Judah to rebuild the temple. And you can see that in 2 Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. We've covered that in a prior unit or also the book of Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. So that's where the decree goes out and Cyrus says, go build a house for the God of heaven. So one way of calculating is that that is the decree that goes out, the word to restore Jerusalem. The other way of calculating is from the book of Nehemiah, where King Artaxerxes makes a declaration to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, either one of these ways can calculate because years were not calculated the same way in ancient times, the ways that we calculate years today. And that's also partly because the world has changed the times and the laws about the times. The calendar that we are running on in the world today is not God's calendar. That's a different story. We're not going to go deeply into that. But that's why both ways of calculating can arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is the fulfillment of this timeline. He was born at exactly the time that Daniel, in all of these passages, predicted the Messiah would arrive. And in addition to this, just as a quick side note, if you're familiar with Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you know that Jesus also prophesies that before his return, before his return to establish his kingdom and bring in the world to come, he prophesies many disastrous events all over the world that will happen before he returns. And he calls it a time of great tribulation before he comes to claim those who have put their faith in him. Those are the saints of the Most High. Those are the ones who will be given the kingdom. That is the final and full fulfillment of these passages of scripture given in the book of Daniel. So Jesus fulfilled the timeline the first time, and before he returns, it will also be another time of destruction and tribulation. But the point for this unit is prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the arrival. He arrived right on time, exactly according to what God had revealed to Daniel. All right, so we're going to move into point J of Unit F, which is high expectancy for Messiah's arrival. We're going to pull some scriptures from the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi was written in approximately 430 B.C., and it makes it clear that the people who had returned from exile to live in the land had grown slack in their obedience to God. So Malachi was the last prophet, and then God went silent for four years. 400 years. And so the last thing that someone said, you're going to pay particular attention to what they said in their last words, especially if they've been silent for 400 years. So let's take a look at Malachi's prophecies about the coming day of the Messiah. One of these things is that God is going to make a distinction. Now, if you're an Israelite and you hear that God is going to make a distinction, there will be bells going off in your mind that God made a distinction at the exodus from Egypt between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. God knows who are his own. So let's look at the scripture of Malachi. This is Malachi 3, starting
starting with verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Who is supposed to be the treasured possession of God? It's supposed to be Israel. God said, if you obey me, you will be my treasured possession in all the earth. He goes on, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So the day of judgment is coming, but those who are the treasured possession of God will be spared. We're at verse 18. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, like I said, there are scriptures in your study guide from the book of Exodus where God made a distinction between the people of Israel and between the people of Egypt. So like, for example, when the livestock died all over Egypt, the livestock in Israel were fine. When there was darkness over all the land of Egypt, where the Israelites were, there was light. God makes a distinction between those who are his and those who are not. However, the wording of Malachi is very clear. Unlike the book of Exodus, God is not making a distinction between Israel as a nation and Gentiles as a whole. Nope. Instead, he is making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, no matter what nation, tribe, and tongue they come from. He is making a distinction between those who truly serve him and those who do not. This is a whole different ballgame, and it doesn't mean that Israel as a nation is saved just because they are the covenant people of God. That's how God did it in the past, but he said, I'm doing a new thing. So Malachi has something else to say about this. Malachi 4 verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So that includes anyone who is arrogant or an evildoer among the people of Israel. He's not saying Israel's got a free pass just because they bear the name of Israel. No, he's saying all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And he's saying they will be totally uprooted. They will have no root, no branch. They will never bear fruit again. Jesus said, those who are not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. He's talking about the day of judgment, but we're up to Malachi 4 verse 2. But for you who fear my name, so that's the contrast, the arrogant and the evildoers compared to those who fear the name of the Lord. For those of you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. If you've ever seen a calf jump out of the stall. Its legs are new and it's testing them out. It's bucking and kicking and it's just ecstatic. We're going to go out in the day of judgment in an ecstasy like that, excited at the day that has come. We will be like calves leaping out of the stall. We're up to verse three. And you shall tread down the wicked for they will be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So Israel was anticipating the Messiah to come and tread down their foes. We talked about that from the Daniel visions, all of the Gentile empires who had been oppressing them. However, Malachi makes clear that it's coming against all arrogant and evildoers, so it doesn't give Israel a free path. The saints of the Most High that will receive the kingdom of God that Daniel spoke about will be those 
those who actually fear the name of God. And for them, the day will rise like the sun and will have healing in its wings. But Malachi isn't quite done yet. He continues, this is Malachi 4, still going on to verse 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So once you've understood that Malachi is saying Israel doesn't get a free pass, and then he says Elijah's going to come, the great and awesome day of the Lord is going to come, and turn hearts so that a decree of utter destruction is not issued. Now, this is a people who are returned from exile. They've already seen their land utterly destroyed. They don't want that again. So this gives you an idea of why the people in the days of Jesus, God hadn't spoken through a prophet for 400 years, and the last words that God is speaking through Malachi are saying, hey, Israel, you got to shape up. Elijah the prophet is coming, and he is going to turn hearts, and if you're not right with God, then a decree of total destruction will come even upon you. Well, so this is why, in anticipation of Messiah's arrival, the leaders of Israel became religiously fanatic in making all their rules and application of their interpretation of the laws of Moses. It was out of fear that a decree of utter destruction was going to be given again on the people's disobedience. So they wanted to follow the law, and they came up with all kinds of crazy interpretations to keep themselves what they thought was totally obedient. But their interpretation was off here and there, and Jesus spoke about that. We'll leave that for a different day. But in this, the people also neglected to remember that the prophet Elijah spoke to the people of Israel. The prophet Elijah called the people of Israel back to repentance from their own double-mindedness and false worship. So they, not interpreting the scriptures correctly, repeated the error of their ancestors and became the ones that Elijah to come would come and say, repent! You're the ones who need to repent. Just like Elijah said, you need to repent. Are you going to worship Baal? Or are you going to worship God? Stop limping between two opinions. That was the ministry of Elijah to the people of Israel. So that's why as the people are anticipating by the timeline of Daniel, the arrival of the Messiah, according to the empires of the Gentiles that have come and gone and set themselves up, they are keeping themselves in rigid religious obedience in anticipation of the Messiah to come because they don't want a decree of utter destruction to be issued against their land again. This is the high expectancy of the arrival of the Messiah who will set ablaze all the enemies of God and hand the kingdom over to the people of God. (music) 